Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. <clears throat> Two weeks ago, we began our study of this chapter, and today we'll complete that study. Now, as we learned, <clears throat> as we learned last time, and as you can see, even if you look at the very first verse, this chapter is primarily an ancient letter. You see that in the first line? These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent. Okay? Now, this is a letter from Jeremiah written to whom? This is the letter that he wrote to people like Daniel, Ezekiel, and about 10,000 other people who were now, at this time, living in exile as captives in Babylon. Okay? Now, we spent a fair bit of time the last time we were together uh, learning about the setting of the letter. And after that, we focused on just one of the two main messages of the letter. The message we focused on last time was what Jeremiah had to say in the letter about the future. Maybe you remember some of this. This is found from Jeremiah 29, verses 8 to 14. And maybe you'll specifically remember that it's in that part of the letter that you get the most well-known lines in the whole book of Jeremiah, where he says in verse 11, For I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Now, on the one hand, as you read this letter, you realize that God's message to the exiles is really, really hard. Okay? God wanted them to know in advance that the exile would last a really, really long time. Babylon would reign over them for 70 years. But God also wanted his people to know and to hear this. I have not forsaken you. I will not forget you, and I will never forget my promises. My plans may not be your plans for your life, but my plans for you are good. My plans are to give you hope and a future. So in, in the context, Jeremiah 29, 11 is actually a word to a suffering people whose life is going to be really, really hard and disappointing. That's the context for those words. It's a call not to despair and not to lose heart. The exile will be hard, but it will not last forever. One day God will bring his people home, and all along the way God will be with them, and he knows what he's doing. His plans for them are good. Okay, So that's what we looked at last time. That was his message about the future. But the other message in the letter is about the present. Okay? It is about what the exiles were supposed to do in the meantime and how they were supposed to think about life in Babylon far from home. And that's what I want to focus in on today. So I'm going to read this. This is only four verses of the letter, but I want to focus on those four verses. This is Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. This is where God lays out his mission for his people in exile. 
Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Okay, this is God's call on those in exile in Babylon. <clears throat> this is his mission for his people in exile. Now I want to say up front that I think it is possible to make too much of this text, okay? And I also think it is possible to make too little out of this text, okay? So let me explain what I mean. On the one hand, this text is not laying out the primary mission for Christ's church today, okay? To claim that, I think, would be to, to make too much out of the text, in my view. Why? Well, for one thing... This, this was definitely not Jeremiah's intent in the letter. And for another thing, there are better places to look in the Bible to find our primary mission as a church. So just think of this. For example, suppose someone asks you, what is, and by the way, I love all of our little children, okay? And in fact, today's message, more than maybe any other, is going to be promoting babies, okay? So this is good, okay? So, okay. so let's suppose someone asked you, okay, what is the primary mission of the church? Okay. Where would you point them in Scripture? Okay. We, might, we might think of a few different passages, but I, I think a text that would be near the top of all of our lists would be Jesus' words at the end of the Gospel of Matthew where he gives his followers what we typically call the Great Commission. You know, Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do all that I have commanded them. Okay? So to treat this text in Jeremiah as if it's our primary mission as Christ's followers today, I think is to make a little too much out of the text. On the other hand, I think it's just as possible and maybe even more likely that we make too little of this text. Okay. See, it is possible to treat God's call on these exiles at this specific time as though it has nothing to do with us, as though it was only relevant for a very short amount of time for people in a very specific situation. And I don't think that's the case either. Okay? And so I think this text is one of the clearest examples in the Bible of how God wants his people to think about life in a place where they are not wanted or welcomed. Okay? We would do well to listen carefully to this text since the perspective of the New Testament is that our entire life is one of living in exile. 
So today, I want to chart a sort of middle path where we recognize the uniqueness of this specific situation, but where we also listen very carefully for how God's call to them should shape our own view of how to live well today as exiles far from home. So let's read the text again. Again, it's only four verses. I want to get it clear in our heads. Verses four to seven. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This is a very simple text. There is nothing complicated in these verses. It is a very clear and direct mission from God directly to his people in exile. Now, what are the key parts of the mission? Okay, look at, you think of verse 5. Build homes, live in them, plant gardens, eat the produce. In other words, unpack your bags, settle down, embrace your new life. Now, of course, all that sounds nice, sounds like simple, helpful advice, but this is where we really need to work at putting ourselves in the shoes of those who heard this. Okay. That's the only way to really understand the significance of this call. And you have to remember a couple things. One is that there were many so-called prophets back in Jerusalem and right there in Babylon who were telling these exiles the exact opposite message. That was what they were hearing from everyone else. They were saying, keep your bags packed. Babylon's going down. We'll all be home for Christmas. Yeah, kind of. That's what they were saying. So, now, get this. Jeremiah's message was unique among them. And his, this call was a radical call to reorient their thinking about the rest of their lives. And then the second thing we need to remember is that this was not what they wanted to hear. Why? It's because Jeremiah, who is in Jerusalem, where they want to be, is saying, in effect, you will never come home. You will be in exile for the rest of your life. So unpack your bags, settle down, build homes, plant some gardens get ready for the long haul. And for Jews, whose whole life up to this point had been bound to the land and the temple, this was a radical call to them. I mean, after all, wasn't true life bound up with being in the land? Wasn't true worship bound up with being at the temple. But now Jeremiah is telling them very clearly, God wants you to unpack, settle down, and live for him in a foreign land. So that is the first part of the mission. That's verse 5. And what about verse 6? Okay, let's read some of it again. Verse 6. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters a marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. So what's the mission in that verse? Verse 6. In effect, get married and have lots of babies. And all those who are currently dating, I think, 
this is a good message, right? Now, again, we need to work hard to put ourselves in their shoes. Okay? Can't you imagine how easy it would be to simply give in to despair in exile? I mean, think of how easy it would be to just say things like, our life is over. We have no future as a people. It will be hard enough to just survive. And honestly, who would even want to bring children into this world? But God's call on those in exile is not to give in to despair. It is to trust him that the story of Israel and of God's plan for the world is not over. A call to trust him that the exile will not be the end of the story. So get married, have babies, raise families. Go out, get wives for your sons. Give your daughters to good men so they can have sons and daughters. And, and I just want to add one thing here that we should keep in mind, that this call was to marry those within the covenant community. That would certainly be understood by everyone. This was not a call to assimilate with the Babylonians and lose their identity as a people. This was not a call to intermarry with those who did not fear God or love the God of Israel. God wanted his people to maintain their identity as his people while they were surrounded on every side by pagans. And having strong, growing families would be the key to doing that. So on the whole, God's mission in verse 6 is to maintain your identity, focus on family, build the community of faith, and play the long game. Lay the right foundation now for generations yet unborn. That is the second part of the mission, and that's verse 6, and then verse 7. Verse 7, the mission is seek the good of your city. See verse 7, seek the welfare of the city. Where I have sent you into exile, pray to the Lord on his behalf, for in his welfare you will find your welfare. Now, of all the parts of the mission, this is probably the most offensive. The other ones would have been hard, they would be a radical call, change your thinking, but this one would have been offensive, I think. Why? I mean, you put yourselves in their shoes. Babylon has taken them as captives. Soon after this letter, Babylon will go into Jerusalem, burn it down, destroy the temple. Babylon is already responsible for the deaths of many, many Jewish people, and they will kill a whole lot more. And what is God's message? What is his mission for his people in exile? Seek the good of the city. Where I have sent you. I mean, but you think about it, from the perspective of those in exile, the people of Babylon are their what? Enemies. They're oppressors. But God's message to them, bless your enemies. Seek their good and pursue the good of the city. Now, did you notice how God describes the city? God says, seek the good of the city where I have sent you into exile. God wants them to remember he's put them there. They are not there in Babylon by accident. God is sovereign over all this. 
He's put them right where they are. And he has a mission for them in that place. Seek the good of that city. But the message doesn't stop there. What else does God tell them to do? He says, and pray to the Lord for it on its behalf. Now, for one thing, I think this would be a reminder that they can pray even in exile. God can hear their prayers even if they never see the temple again. But perhaps what's even more striking is that this is a call specifically to pray for the good of those who do not know the Lord. And note, this is God's idea. These are God's words to his people. God is saying, I want you to talk to me about them for their good. Ask me to bless them. This certainly shows us something of God's love, even for those who don't know him, even for those who have no care for him at all. He tells his people, I want you to pray to me for their good. But as you read the text and think about it, it's also clear that God's special concern, even in this, is ultimately for his own people that he loves. That's what you see in the last phrase of verse 7. God gives this reason. It says, for in the welfare of the city, you will find your own well-being. The well-being of those in exile is going to be bound up with the city that they live in. If the city falls apart, God's people will suffer. But if the city prospers, God's people will prosper. So God lays out the mission for his people, pursue the well-being of the city, pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. Now, that's, that's the text. And I want to try to think about it <clears throat> for the rest of the time today. You start stepping back, you start thinking through this, some of its implications. So I want to start with a simple question. Do you think anyone actually listened to the letter? Can you think of anyone who got the letter and actually lived this out? I think the answer, I don't know if you can think of anyone, but the answer, if there are people, is yes. There are people who did. And I think the clearest examples are people like Daniel, and his friends. And we're not going to go over to Daniel and look at all these stories. But if you go and you read the stories, especially from the first half of Daniel, you will get a lot of insight into what it might have looked like to hear this and to live it out. These, those young men, like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they maintained their identity as God's people, even at great risk to their own lives. You can think of the stories. Thrown into a fiery furnace. Lions done. I mean, not eating of things that they knew God wouldn't want them to eat, even when there was great pressure on them to do it. But these guys also <coughs> sought the good of the city. Daniel especially sought the good of Babylon. In fact, even when the people... Even when there were people specifically out to get him, what was the only thing they could hold against him? 
this guy always prays to the God of Israel. And I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that at least one of the things that he prayed for regularly was for the good of the city. He seemed to care a lot about Nebuchadnezzar, for example. Had a great ministry with him. And I think that stories like those found in the book of Daniel help us to grasp <clears throat> what it might have looked like to live for God as exiles far from home. But even though we have examples like that in the Bible, I think it's still challenging to figure out exactly how the call in this text relates to us today. Okay? And like I said earlier, I think you can make maybe too much of the text, but you could also make too little of it, as, this, as though this has nothing to do with us. Okay. I want to try to chart a middle path. Okay. And to do so, I first want to show you that God's call in Jeremiah 29 actually reflects God's call in at least two other really important texts in the Bible. Okay. In other words, this call is not entirely unique to Jeremiah 29 and to that situation. So the first text I want to think about is just the one that I read for the Old Testament reading. I want us to think all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 to the story of creation. At the end of Genesis 1, after God has made the first man and the first woman, God blesses them and gives them a commission often called the creation mandate. You remember what it says? It's Genesis 1 verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then after the flood, in Genesis 9, God repeats this to Noah and his family. This is Genesis 9 verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then it's interesting, as you go on in the story, at the beginning of Exodus... Right before God rescues his people from bondage in a foreign land. This is what it says. Exodus chapter 1 verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And then, So even in bondage in Egypt, the people of Israel did not decrease. They were fruitful, multiplied, filled the land. And then one day, in God's timing and in God's way, he acted. God rescued them and brought them to the promised land. And what Jeremiah is saying to the people in exile is very, very similar. A call to continue to increase as you wait for God to act once more in a mighty way. So in in light of how... I see this theme from creation to the flood to the exodus to Jeremiah. I think it is safe to say there is something for us to learn as God's people today for what God wants for us as people living in exile far from home. There is something here for us about God's desire for Christian marriages, for Christian families to have and raise kids for him, even in exile. Now, of course, we realize that God's will for different individuals may be different. For example, God calls some to serve him faithfully in singleness, 
whether that be for a certain amount of time or for life. If that's God's call on your life, you're in really good company. You're in the company of Jesus and Paul. God knows the plans he has for you, and they are good. For some couples, there may be significant, even heartbreaking struggles to conceive or to bear children. Don't let a text like this that promotes getting married and having babies cause you to lose heart or to feel shame. God is good, sovereign. His call is not identical to every individual. At the same time, though, I think this text is a reminder of God's typical plan for his people as a whole, even if they're in exile, even if they live in a world where they are not wanted or welcomed. And that is that marriage is a beautiful thing in God's sight. And having babies, even lots of them, is a beautiful thing. Our culture is absolutely headed in the wrong direction on these things. Our culture right now is very into redefining marriage, undermining marriages that exist, dissolving marriages, and postponing marriage indefinitely. (laughs) We want to have God's heart, which is to promote Christian marriage as what it really is, a beautiful gift from God. Our culture is also, right now, very into doing whatever it takes to avoid having babies, to postpone having babies, and to make sure if you really do need to have babies, you don't have very many. We want to have God's heart as God's people, which is to love children, to view every child as a precious gift from the hand of God to us. This should be something that really sets the Christian community apart from the surrounding culture, how we promote marriage and children. Now, the second text I want us to think about in light of Jeremiah 29 comes from the mouth of Jesus. It's from his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5. This is where he lays out his vision for what he wants his people to be in the middle of a world where he knew they would not be wanted or welcomed. Think about these verses from Jesus in light of Jeremiah's letter. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Jesus says to his people, right after saying, there's going to be lots of people who revile you and hate you for my sake. Right after that, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how will it be restored? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand so it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus' vision for his people is that they would be a community of light in a world of darkness, that they would truly be Jesus' people in a world that would not want them. Again, this call from Jesus reminds me of God's call in Jeremiah to the exiles to pursue and to pray for the good of the city. 
Now, what might it look like to seek the good of the city in our own day? As a church, it's texts like this that strongly influenced our vision statement where we lay out different aims we have as a church, goals, and one of those goals that we have as a church is that we be a church that is locally engaged. We want to be a church that is engaged deeply in our local neighborhoods and communities. We want to know, serve, and bless people around us who don't know Jesus. We want to be a church which embraces our call to be lights in a world of darkness. That's what we aim for as a church. That's why we try to be as involved as we can in community events, in serving the kids around our property, in helping the Crisis Pregnancy Center in our town, in trying to help children in our community have what they need to go to school, and much more. But there's no doubt there's a lot more that we could do, ways we could grow. But as, in, in, as individuals also, though, I think we need to think about what it would look like to seek the good of the city, where God has sent us. God has put us where we are on purpose. God has put you where you are for the good of the city. Our, there are probably, as Christians, other cities in the United States that would be easier to live in as Christians, where you would be more welcomed than in our city. But God has put us in this city to do what? To pursue the good of the city. Well, what would that look like in your life? I, want to, I hope you'll think about this. It will look different for different people. But I think this is, at minimum, a reminder that it's not okay to withdraw in despair when we think of the city. We're supposed to actively pursue the good of the city. Now, what would that look like? Perhaps for some, that will look like mentoring or tutoring or coaching. Or for others, it may look like helping to feed the needy in your city. Or, or it may just involve just being a good neighbor by showing hospitality to those on your block. I think many people living around us have never been in each other's homes. They might have lived on the same block for decades and never been in the home of one other person. You could be that kind of, kind of person, being a good neighbor, or by being sure to look out for your elderly neighbor, or by being the first to welcome a new person to your complex or to your neighborhood. For others, this may look like getting involved in the actual business of the city. For others, this may simply involve participating in the church's community-focused events. And there are many other things that, that, that I'm sure many of us are already involved in that I don't even, even know about. But, but at minimum, this text is a reminder to us that being in exile is not an excuse to withdraw in despair from the city God has put us in. And um, that at least, I mean, to do that would, would not be what it means to pray for and pursue the well-being of the city. Now, as we close out this two-part study, I want to leave us with a few of my own reflections. 
I don't always do this where I kind of like summarize, like what should I take away from this? But I, I've tried for the last two weeks to summarize as concisely as possible some of my own takeaways for myself, for my family, for our church. And of course, you may have to adapt some of these things to your own circumstances, and you'll come up with other things that I haven't. But, but I just wanted to share a bit of how I've been thinking about this myself. Okay? Like what are a couple concise ways to say this? Okay? What should we do in light of Jeremiah 29? One, I'm thinking to myself, don't get nearsighted. Play the long game. In other words, settle down, focus on your family and those under your care, and pour your life into generations yet unborn. Like, invest in the future. Play the long game. Second, I think don't conform to this age. Maintain your identity as God's people. So in other words, focus on your church. Build the community of faith. And I need to always guard myself against trying to fit in so much that I lose my identity as God's son. Third, I think don't withdraw in despair over what you see. Instead, actively pursue the good of the city. Fourth, keep things in perspective. Never forget that the time of exile is temporary. There's a lot of ways you could apply that, but I was just thinking of this. I need to challenge myself. Never forget that here we have no lasting city. So yes, love the city, but also remember we ultimately seek the city which is still to come. And then finally, don't doubt. Remember the resurrection of Jesus guarantees the future. You see, so much of Jeremiah 29 is anchored in the belief that God knows the plans he has for us. Plans to give us a future and a sure and glorious hope. That future is sure because Jesus lives. Our future is certain because Jesus has conquered sin and death through his cross. Jesus died, rose, and he lives. And so I think of what Paul says when he thinks about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians. He, he applies it this way. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know that in the Lord, none of your labor is in vain. That's the way that the, res the resurrection helps shape the life of those in exile. Because Jesus lives, one day the exile will be no more. One day we'll finally be home. But in the meantime, I think it is legitimate to say what Jeremiah's letter said which is more or less embrace God's call to live for him in exile. Let's pray. Father, would you please take this great letter that has such wisdom in it and help us to think through it in light of your call on us 
as sojourners, as pilgrims, as exiles. Lord, help us to love those around us, to pray for the good of this city, to seek actively its well-being. Help us to build families, to raise them together as your people. Lord, we thank you even today for all the sounds of the children among us. Lord, this is a sign of your blessing on us. Would you help us to raise up future generations who will run after you? We pray that even these children among us will one day grow to do far more for you and your glory than than even we have done. Lord, I pray that you will help us as a church to listen carefully to your call to us about how to live well for you in a world where we are not wanted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.